Now we're going to turn our attention to God's Word. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to uh, invite you and encourage you to open it to Genesis chapter 3. And while you are locating that, let me just say the Christmas season is upon us. I think we all know that. Uh, But one of the things that happens at this time of year, there's this kind of debate that sort of rages might be an overstatement, sort of rages every year at this time. And that debate revolves around the question of whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. (laughs) Now, for the uninitiated, Die Hard was an action movie released all the way back in 1988. The plot centers around New York City detective John McClane, who is uh, caught up in a takeover of a Los Angeles skyscraper while he's there visiting his estranged wife. I mean, that just sort of screams Christmas to you, doesn't it? Now, I don't want to get into all the details. This isn't sort of, you know, Pastor Lee's movie recommendation segment or anything. But Die Hard clearly is a Christmas movie. I mean, firstly, John McClane's wife is named Holly. Secondly, though it was released in July, all of the action takes place on Christmas Eve. And thirdly, the soundtrack to the movie includes Run DMC's Christmas in Hollis. I rest my case. Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Now, the reason I tell you that is because we're about about to embark on a short Christmas series. And we are beginning that series With a verse from Genesis chapter 3, this verse, verse 15, which says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that might not sound like a Christmas verse to you when you first hear it, but it is, in fact, the very first Christmas verse we find in the Bible. Charles Simeon, the great preacher of the 17th and 18th centuries, described Genesis 3.15, that verse I just read for you, as the sum and the summary of the whole Bible. Now, that's, that's quite a claim. But is it true? And I would say I, my, my hope is that as we explore this verse together this morning, we will discover or you will discover that everything we love and cherish about the gospel is found right here in Genesis 3.15. So today is the first Sunday of Advent. We're beginning an Advent series or a Christmas series. Advent is is a Latin word. It simply means coming. And we use it to refer to that period of preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus. We've entitled this series, Waiting for Christmas. I think every one of us knows what it's like to wait for Christmas to come. Uh, When you're young, there's just so much anticipation that comes along with Christmas, isn't there? I mean, you know, you can hardly wait for it to get here, for the holidays, to open the stockings, the presents that are under the tree, all of that stuff. You're just, that when you're young, the waiting seems interminable, like Christmas can't come quick enough. It seems like it will never get here. I think there's a kind of expectant waiting that we do for Christmas as adults as well. 
I mean, Christmas can be such a great family time. It might be that, you know, your kids have been away at, at college or maybe uh, some of the family has moved away. Maybe you've moved away. And Christmas might be the one time of the year where the whole family is together in one place. You look forward to that. You long for that. Or maybe you wait for Christmas with some expectancy because you know you get some time off. I mean, if you're a teacher or a student, you've got a couple of weeks uh, without classes Lots of offices, lots of businesses, some industries completely shut down over the Christmas holidays. There's lots of reasons that we wait for Christmas with a sense of anticipation. But there was a waiting for Christmas that preceded all of that. And that waiting actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It lasts from the Garden of Eden to the coming of Jesus. And over the course of the next four weeks, we're going to explore that period of waiting. And we're going to do that through a series of four messages based on four Old Testament prophecies or passages. We're going to look at a seed, a sign, a son, and a surprise. And we're starting today with a seed. I've already read Genesis 3.15 for you. I'm going to read a little bit more of that chapter just to give you the context. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. And verse 8 comes immediately on the heels of Adam and Eve having eaten the forbidden fruit. They've eaten from the tree that God commanded them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 8 begins immediately after that has happened. And it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat it. Eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, you shall, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Well, we've actually explored this passage in some depth before. We've done that a couple of times. Uh, we're, we're, we're not going to do that this morning. Uh, it's not my intention to do that. Instead, we're going to zero in on verse 15. But I think it does help just to remember the context of this passage, the context in which this verse appears. 
The words we find here in Genesis 3 are God's response to his rebellious creatures. And the words of Genesis 3.15 are addressed to the serpent. But they have something to teach us about the past, about the present, and about the future. So we're going to consider this verse along those three lines, past, present, and future. And I would say that the first thing this verse teaches us about is the grace of Christmas past. Now, grace might not be the first thing that you think of when you hear this verse or even when you read this chapter. But there's a strong note of grace here that we shouldn't miss. So the serpent has coerced Adam and Eve to violate the one prohibition that God had given them. God had created this world of beauty and bounty. He's given it all to his creatures to enjoy. He's told them they could eat from any tree in the garden except the one tree that stood in the middle of the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we live in a world that is dominated by rules. I mean, everywhere we turn, there's a rule that we must keep or something we must not do. You can't park here. You must not exceed this speed limit. Your carry-on baggage cannot be more than 22 inches high and 14 inches wide and 9 inches deep. There's all sorts of rules everywhere we look. Adam and Eve simply had one rule. That's it. One law, one commandment, and they broke it. And so in light of that, it's not surprising that Genesis 3 is filled with pronouncements of God's judgment. It's not surprising that the serpent and that Adam and that Eve are each singled out for what they did. Man must now work by the sweat of his brow. The woman must bring forth children in pain or increased pain. The serpent is consigned to crawling on his belly and licking the dust. None of that is surprising. What is surprising is that along with the judgment, there is grace. I think we all understand judgment. We understand justice. We understand commit the crime do the time, or play stupid games, win stupid prizes. We understand getting what you deserve. There's an old Gilbert and Sullivan musical called The Mikado, and one of the characters in that musical is the Lord High Executioner. He's the one who determines punishments for everything, from the smallest offenses to the largest of offenses. And he sings about his desire to make sure that his punishments always fit the crime perfectly. And he expresses his desire like this. He says, my object all sublime, I shall achieve in time to make the punishment fit the crime, the punishment fit the crime. And then in one verse, he sings about crooked billiard players. And he says this, the billiard shark whom anyone catches His doom's extremely hard. He's made to dwell in a dungeon cell in a spot that's always barred. And there he plays extravagant matches in fitless finger stalls on a cloth untrue with twisted cue and elliptical billiard balls. Now, I think we get that, right? The the pool shark or the hustler, he's consigned to a sentence of playing impossible matches. He could never win. 
He gets exactly what he deserves. And like the Lord High Executioner, God exercises his judgment. His punishments always fit the crime. But along with the punishment, God extends grace. You can see it in the sentences he pronounces here. Yes, the man has to work by the sweat of his brow, but he's still able to produce food by his efforts. Yes, the woman will experience pain in childbirth, but she still has the blessing of bringing children into the world. God doesn't just wipe out the human race. But we're focusing on God's words to the serpent, and I would say there's a note of grace here too, not directed at the serpent, but directed to us. Everyone in this story deserves nothing but judgment. But God in his grace makes a way for salvation. Now we're going to go, we're going to dig into the nature of that salvation in a bit. It's going to come through the serpent's striking of the woman's offspring and the woman's offspring crushing or striking the serpent's head. So I can't really do all of that justice in just a short time, so I brought in some help. Uh, when you see us doing uh, children, uh, child dedications here at the church, you, you might notice you know, we, we had a certificate and a book to the parents. The first time around, you get a book on parenting. The second time around, we actually give you this rather large book, it's the biggest Bible or the biggest story, Bible storybook. It's, it's a beautifully illustrated book written by Kevin DeYoung. And I like the way he summarizes this part of Genesis 3, really this verse in Genesis 3, Genesis 3.15. And he says this, because of Adam's one sin and all its messes came into the world for everyone, life would be hard from then on. The ground would be hard, work would be hard, marriage would be hard, having babies would be hard, and death would be really hard. What a rotten day, the second worst day in the history of the world. And then as you turn the page, it says this, and yet before you close this book and crawl under your covers and cry, you need to know that just as all the bad things began to happen, God's promise was beginning too. He promised that one day there would be a snake crusher to flatten that slimy serpent and save his sinful people. A war was about to begin, but God had already guaranteed that because of, the, of a great one to come, the good guys would win. That's the story of Genesis 3.15. That's the story of the Bible, that from that moment, the promise was in effect there will come one who will achieve victory for us. Salvation will be provided. And what I'm trying to stress in this first point is that the whole thing is a product of grace. Grace by its nature is undeserved. And you see it all through this story. I mean, notice who does the pursuing in this story. It's God. God comes into the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve run and hide. Right, They're naked. They're ashamed. They don't want God to see them like this. They didn't eat the forbidden fruit and then say, you know what? We blew it. God gave us one command and we blew it. We should call on him and acknowledge what we've done. That's not what they do. But God comes to them. 
And we see this pattern all through the Bible. God comes to his rebellious people. He pursues us. Christmas is the story of grace. It's the story of a God who loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And God didn't send Jesus because we were so deserving, but but in spite of the fact that we were undeserving. John says it this way. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, what John says there is what Genesis says here in seed form. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and made a way for our salvation. We were the ones rebelling against our creator and God makes a way. And I think these words in Genesis 3.15 help us understand that the coming of Jesus into the world wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't sort of a last-minute gift from our Heavenly Father. The birth of Jesus was God's gracious plan for our salvation from the beginning of time. In fact, if we want to be totally accurate about it, from before the beginning of time. The book of Revelation refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. So we learn firstly about the grace of Christmas past, that Christmas was God's idea from the very beginning of time. Second thing we learn about here is the opposition of Christmas present. Listen again to what God says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a lot in that verse that we might need to define. The word enmity, for instance, means to be hostile towards or to be actively opposed to. It's the the root of that word is the same root we get our word enemy from. God's pronouncement is that there will be that kind of relationship between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And you actually don't have to read very far in the book of Genesis to see how this gets worked out. When we turn ahead just one page or just one chapter in the Bible, we find the story of Adam and Eve's children or offspring, Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel is the story of a sibling rivalry gone wrong. It's the story of the first murder. The boys both present an offering to God. God looks with favor on Abel's offering. He looks with displeasure on Cain's offering. And Cain is ticked off about it. In chapter 8, or verse 8 of chapter 4, it says this, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So Cain was like, look, I've got to show you something out in the field. And when Abel least suspects it, Cain turns on him and murders him in cold blood. The question is, why did he kill his brother? Well, you can come up with lots of reasons. I mean, anyone who has had a brother has thought about it, right? (laughs) Just kidding. Now, we might think, well, it was was jealousy or something along those lines. 
And we wouldn't be wrong, but it's interesting to see how the New Testament describes Cain's actions. Listen to these words from the book of 1 John. John says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Did did you notice how Cain was described? We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, right? He's the offspring of the serpent. He's of the devil. Now, both boys were the offspring of Adam and Eve. So the offspring, they were the offspring of the same woman. But God doesn't have in mind just physical, the physical nature of this. There is this opposition all through the Bible. This, in fact, is the storyline that runs through so much of the Bible. So much of the tension that we find in the Bible is taken up with the account of God's people and the opposition to them. Will they survive or won't they? And the opposition to them can take lots of different forms, but it's always ultimately a spiritual opposition. It's always the result of this verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, I call this point the opposition of Christmas present because this continues throughout even up to today. I don't tweet a lot, I almost never, but I I did share a short video this week of a young pastor by the name of Banju Salam, who was dragged out of his house church in Chattisgarh, India on November 11th, just a couple weeks ago, and beaten with sticks for preaching the gospel. He and other believers were hospitalized as a result. There is an active and present Opposition to Christmas. But I think even understanding that, that doesn't tell us the full story. I entitled this message, A Seed. And the reason I chose that title is because the word that's translated here as offspring is literally the word seed. I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. Now, I understand why most translations make the choice to go with offspring and not seed, but I actually think we lose something in that translation. So later, when God makes his promise to Abraham, God says, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. And then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Again, literally, your seed is will be that numerous. I think it's actually a lot easier to visualize seed that is as numerous as the stars of the sky than it is to visit to, to visualize offspring that is as numerous as the stars in the sky. But that's not actually why I think translating it seed is important. The word seed here in Genesis 3.15 is actually a collective singular. It could have reference to a group of people or it could have reference to a specific individual. So which is it? Well, I actually think the correct answer is both. Now, we've already seen the way it applies collectively to God's people as a whole. There is this opposition to God's people, to the offspring of the woman. But it actually finds its ultimate application in a specific individual. So who is the seed of the woman? But you probably know the answer. It's the answer to most questions in church, right? Jesus. Jesus is the seed of the woman. Of the woman. This is why this is a Christmas message. 
And when you read through the Gospels with this lens, you can't help but see the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So think about the story of Jesus' birth. Matthew records this detail for us. It says, then, when, then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. What is that if not the enmity that exists between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman? I will do everything in my power to snuff him out. And this is something you actually see all through the gospel. So in the, in the gospel of Luke, you find the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 3. And Luke begins that genealogy with Jesus. He says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then he continues all these names. And when we get to the end of the genealogy, he says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Luke is careful to trace Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam. That's how Luke chapter 3 ends. Then Luke chapter 4 begins like this. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And what form did the tempter take? that of a serpent. So Luke has no sooner told us about the origins of Jesus than he then begins to describe this plot against him. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. This is the story of the Bible. It's the story of Jesus. The book of Revelation gives us this, or gives us the cosmic view of all these events. Here's what it says in chapter 12. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Those of you in the Revelation study, I know you haven't got there Yet, but you can figure out what all the details are in those verses. But if you want to know where to find the Christmas story in the Bible, you find it between the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. You find it at the very beginning and you find it all the way to the end. The Bible is one big story. So we learn about the opposition. We learn about the grace of Christmas past. We learn about the opposition of Christmas present. And thirdly, we learn about the hope of Christmas future. So this verse has a future orientation to it. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Then the last part of the verse says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word translated bruise can mean strike, or crush. 
It's really the context that determines its meaning. So a wound on the heel is not fatal, but a wound on the head can be fatal. For that reason, I think it's fitting to translate this as you will strike his heel and he will crush your head. But if this is future, when does this happen? When is the serpent's head crushed by the seed of the woman? And the Bible's answer to that question is that it happens in two stages. It happens firstly through the death and resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus goes to the cross, it looks like the serpent has struck a mortal blow. I mean, his whole existence has been one of hostility towards the seed of the woman. Now it looks like that seed has been destroyed. Jesus is crucified. But while the serpent is playing checkers, God has been playing chess. And and when I think about that, I actually think about an experience uh, in our home from uh, just a few years back. So our kids have actually had the privilege of growing up just a block away from their cousins. And it would not be an exaggeration to say that in their younger years, they saw them more days than they didn't see them. And I remember right at the start of COVID, when everything was shut down, school was closed, all of that, they decided, I think out of boredom, to have a baking contest with their cousins. They had an afternoon to bake a cake in the shape of of a turtle. That was the nature of the contest. So I watched our kids bake and shape their cake. I thought they did a great job. Here's their cake. Here's a picture of it. It's pretty good, right? I started feeling bad for our nephews and nieces. I'm like, you know, when they come over tonight, I mean, this is what our kids were able to do in just a few hours. Like they're going to totally be embarrassed. Cousins come over and they unveil their cake. Here it is. Sort of the ultimate chess checkers moment in the history of baking contests, right? In a far more profound way, that's what Genesis 3.15 is describing. You will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. This is what Jesus did by going to the cross. The serpent strikes his blow, but in the striking of that blow is his defeat. As Isaiah later prophesies about the coming Messiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. How did Jesus achieve this victory? It was through his death on the cross. One of the songs we sometimes sing around here is called My Victory. The chorus of that song says, Oh, your blood bled for me. Oh, your blood in crimson streams. Oh, your death is hell's defeat. A cross meant to kill is my victory. You will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. And Jesus crushed the head of the serpent with his death and resurrection. But I said the crushing of the serpent's head comes in stages and it does. 
The serpent's defeat is a certainty because of Jesus' death and resurrection, but we know that he still wreaks havoc on the earth. Now, there will come a day where he is finally cast down into the lake of fire forever. But here's what we need to know now. Because we have been united with Jesus, we actually get in on that victory. We share in that victory. As Paul signs off his letter to the Christians in Rome, he says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The serpent will be crushed under our feet. That's his final fate. That's the future of Christmas hope. The serpent's end means that there will be no more pain, no more separation, no more tears, no more cancer, no more war, no more more isolation, no more loneliness, and no more death. So one of my theology teachers used to say, if that doesn't turn you on, you ain't got no switches. This is the good news. This is the hope of Christmas future. You will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. And so we look forward and we long for the complete fulfillment of that. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace of Christmas past, the fact that even though we were not seeking you, you sought us and you continue to do that. We understand the opposition of Christmas present. We know that there are so many things we experience that are hostile to you, to your word, to your truth. And God, we are your people. We identify with you. And we thank you for the hope of Christmas future. We thank you that there will come a day when all of this stuff is done away with, when the serpent will be defeated forever. We will not experience all of the things we experience now, the hardships, the troubles, the separation from loved ones. And God, we we pray that you would fill us with that hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.